0: Now, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We are in a series on Acts. We're going to continue it next week as we dive into the missionary journeys of of Paul. This uh, first portion of Acts, though, sort of ends with chapters 10 and 11. And we talk a lot about community in the church. These chapters have to do with who makes up that community. Who is a part of that community from God's perspective? And these are very important chapters to tell you what's going to happen, right? This is a story about, or the account of the conversion of Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And um, I'm just going to read a couple of, of verses at the end here. Um, but then what we're going to do is go back to the beginning of chapter 10. And we're going to walk through this chapter part by part um, Combine this with chapter 11 in your reading later today. But if you just look with me now at verse 44, the second part of that verse says, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, and that was Cornelius and his family and his whole household. And then we read, the circumcised believers who who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, if you think about that, those are the exact manifestations of the Spirit that were given to the Jews on the very first Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. In other words, God is affirming that this has been his decision to include all of the Gentiles in his church and in his kingdom. No different signs for the Gentiles compared to the Jews. We are all one people in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's go back to chapter 10, the beginning, um, page 1708 in your Bibles, 1708. And like I said, we're just going to uh, read through part by part this morning, and I will talk a little bit about each section. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment, clearly a Gentile. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision— he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Now we're going to pause there. This is Luke's introduction to Cornelius. Okay? I want to tell you about a little uh, another introduction. Some of you may be familiar with the 1967 film. That was a long time ago, I know. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? If you haven't seen it, just uh, check it out sometime. But that film starred Sidney Portier as a young doctor, along with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, high profile stars, as his fiance's parents, and it dealt with the socially charged topic of interracial marriage. Now the plot dealt with a black man and a white man a white woman who met in Hawaii while they were on vacation. They fell in love and now they had to come back to the United States and tell their parents about it. Um, particularly her parents, okay? Now, when this um, screenplay was actually written for this film, we have to understand that interracial marriage was still outlawed by at least 17 southern states, all right? So this was a charged topic at this time. And then the title, um, the the line that makes up the title of the film, this is kind of interesting as well, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? That was a question included in the original film, and it was answered by kind of this uh, sassy black maid named Tilly, and it was a sarcastic answer that she gave. The answer was, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Dr. Martin Luther King. But they had to actually remove that line from the original film because, as you know, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. And so that part had to disappear. But when this film was made, okay, the director, Stanley Kramer, he wanted to make certain that the only objection people would have to this white girl marrying a black man the only objection that they would have was would be race okay and so the doc or the the character that portier portrays he's a, a doctor from a top school he's involved in innovative medical initiatives in africa he was against premarital sex Um, He wanted the the blessing of his future in-laws upon the marriage. He felt that was very important. He even left money by the phone for a long-distance phone call that he made during the film. So, the only issue that anyone could have had with this marriage was race. The only issue they really could have had was race. Now... I don't know where the director got that idea. Okay, but it could have been from Luke. And it could have been from the way that Luke introduces us to this Gentile named Cornelius. Because Cornelius is almost too perfect. He's a he's a god-fearing man. He gives generously to the poor. He prays regularly. God even sends him an angel to let him know how much God actually approves of Cornelius. And so the only issue that you can really have with Cornelius in this text is his race. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. And what Luke is telling us here as we begin this text is that here is a text about race. It's about those ancient walls that divide us as human beings. And it's about, it's about those walls that from time to time get broken down or begin to crumble, only to be mended again by human hands and human hearts. That's what this text is about. It's about race. Okay, Let's, let's go on. Verse 4. Cornelius uh, stared at him in fear, that is, at the angel. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And I want to comment on a couple of things there. It's not on all the people named Simon. It's on the offering. Luke tells us that that, um, all of the good things that Cornelius was doing rose up before God as a memorial offering. Note that. It's not just any kind of offering, it's a memorial offering. Now why would Luke specify that? A memorial offering wasn't even that prominent in the Old Testament, but there were memorial offerings. The question becomes, you know, a memorial offering is about what? It's about remembering, right? But the question becomes, who's doing the remembering? Who's supposed to do the remembering in a, in a memorial offering? Is it the worshiper? Is it the worshiper that's supposed to remember that, hey, all good things have come from God, and therefore I'm, I'm bringing a, an offering back to God? Is, is it the worshiper that's supposed to be doing the remembering? Or when you bring a memorial offering, are we jogging God's memory about something? I would say it's the latter. I would say it's the latter. Why do I think that? Well, in particular, because of Genesis 9. Okay? Genesis 9. What happens in Genesis 9? That's after the flood, right? And God comes to Noah, and he makes a covenant with Noah. And he says to Noah, or actually gives Noah a covenant sign. And it's the rainbow, right? And he says, he says... Or uh, Noah, whenever you see this uh, this uh, rainbow, I want you to remember my covenant. Is that what he says? No, he actually says, "I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky, and whenever I see that rainbow, I'm going to remember that I've made a covenant with you never to destroy the earth again." It's a memorial offering. A memorial offering is reminding God of his promises that he makes to his people in his covenant. His covenant promises. Now, does God really need um, to remember things? Is God you know, going a little senile with old age? Does he have to put little sticky notes in his refrigerator that says, remember to get a gallon of milk on your way home from work? No. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. What God is saying, though, is my covenant promises to you are sure, and I want you to come to me and remind me of my promises and claim them for yourself. Claim them. God, you made this promise. Now keep it. You made this promise. All right? Now, What promise are we talking about here in Acts chapter 10? Well, God made a promise way back in in Genesis 12 already, didn't he? He said to Abraham, Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the world. I will do this. Here comes up a memorial offering to our God. What is Luke trying to tell us here? What he's trying to tell us is that Bringing Cornelius and bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, this has been God's idea from the very beginning. This isn't a new thing. This isn't a new thought on God's part. This isn't an afterthought on God's part. Neither is this Cornelius' idea. This isn't Peter's idea. This has been a part of God's plan since before creation itself, that God would include not just the Jews but also the Gentiles into his family and into his kingdom. This is God's idea, friends. God's idea. It's a wonderful idea. On to verse 7. When the angel uh, who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. Okay? Okay? I want to pause there. He sent them to Joppa, and there he was to get Peter, or they were to get Peter and bring Peter back to Cornelius. Now, whenever you're studying the Bible, okay, here's a little tip, and you see a place name, just pause there and think, hey, is there anything that this name might have relation to, anything special that this name might mean? so let me ask you when you read the name joppa that's where peter was do you think of anything does it ring any bells how about jonah okay the story of jonah the account of jonah right old testament prophet what did god call jonah to do god said jonah i want you to go to nineveh and to preach to them because my heart is going out to those people. They're lost in sin, and I want to bring my mercy to them. So I want you to go preach to them that they might repent and turn from their sin and, and turn to me. And, and what, did, what did Jonah do? Um, well, this is what he did. He went to Joppa, okay, which was a seaport on the Mediterranean, And what did he do? Did he he sail off to Nineveh to go preach to the Ninevites? No. He got on a ship from Joppa and went in the exact opposite direction to get as far away from Nineveh as he actually could. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he wanted no part of God showing mercy and grace to those Ninevites. Who were the Ninevites? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, right? Assyria was a Gentile nation. It was a nation of oppressors. They oppressed Israel, and Israel hated them with a passion. And there was no way that Jonah was going to go preach God's mercy and grace to a place like Nineveh. Now let's think about Jonah for a moment and just think about him in terms of, of last week's uh, message, right? When Jonah got that word from God, even though he was a prophet of God, I would say that Jonah was not converted. He had not gone through conversion himself. He was still into self-saving, okay? He was righteous because he kept the law. He was righteous because he was a son of Abraham. He was into self-saving, and therefore he was into self-serving. He wanted nothing to do with actually serving God. Jonah himself needed to be converted before he would go to Nineveh. And that's exactly the the question we are facing here in Acts chapter 10. Peter's in Joppa. He gets word that he is supposed to go to Cornelius and preach God's message of mercy and grace and compassion. And the question is, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And here's where we, where we learn, friends, that this chapter is not just about the conversion of Cornelius. This chapter is about the conversion of Peter. What's he going to do? Is he going to get on a boat and sail to Tarshish in the exact opposite direction? Or is he going to go to Nineveh? Is he going to go to Cornelius and preach God's word Well, I think we know the end of that story. We know the end of that question. But, okay, if you go back to the story of Jonah, God had to go or take some rather extreme measures to get Jonah to do what he wanted him to do, right? Think of big fish. And he's got to do or take some extreme measures in the life of Peter as well. And that's what uh, we hear about next. Let's look at verse 9. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. Immediately, the sheet was taken back to heaven. Um, Now, we're just going to pause there for a moment. Tim Keller says that this section contains three hammer blows uh, for Peter to actually begin to understand that God wants him to go and talk to Cornelius. And in those verses I just read, you, f- you hear the first hammer blow, right? Um, Peter gets this, this vision, the this sheet of all the animals, clean, unclean, pure, impure, and they're all mingled together, right? Just like they are in the world, but not on a Jewish menu. And God says to Peter, you kill and you eat. And here we get kind of the emotional response of Peter, who's like, no way, Lord. There's no way I'm going to do this. I've never done anything like this. No way. And God knows that that's basically the same emotional response Peter's going to have to his command to go and see Cornelius. And so three times this vision comes. Three times he gets the same vision The same question he asks, okay, and the same answer he receives. Don't call anything impure that I have made pure. And there we see again, okay, that things are not inherently pure and impure. It's not like the Gentiles are inherently impure and the Jews are pure. Rather, it's God that makes things pure It's God who saves. It's God who brings salvation. That's the first hammer blow. Three times Peter gets that message. This is about God. This is about things that God does. The second hammer blow comes in the next verses. Uh, 17, let's pick that up. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still speaking about the vision, or thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Basically, God is just sort of leading Peter by the nose. Peter, people right downstairs, right now, three people, go with them. Okay? He's like, it's like he's leading a child. Go with them. I want you to do this. That's the second hammer blow. The third hammer blow comes in the next verses where where basically um, God says to Peter, hey, this isn't a whim on cornelius's part that he just thought maybe i ought to go visit uh, peter or send some people to peter and ask him to come back god actually sends an angel to cornelius and he wants peter to know that okay i've brought cornelius to you and i want you to go to cornelius jonah got a big fish peter gets three hammer blows and what's the response? You read in verse uh, 23, the second part. The next day, Peter started out with them. So Peter goes. He obeys. Um, he doesn't head to Tarshish. He doesn't pull a Jonah. But he goes to Cornelius. Now, um, we want to keep, uh, keep moving here. Or... But first I want to pause, I should, I should just pause there. Um, this particular part of the text, okay, God's hammer blows, they're really just indicative of the whole text. God is guiding everything here, okay? There is no doubt about that. There is no doubt about that. And, and what we have to understand about that is, if this text is about racism, Friends, if we are harboring any kind of racism in our hearts, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we do that with God's approval. We don't. We don't. If you believe that, if your friends believe that, then just point them to Acts 10 and 11. Okay? Um, Sometimes we say, well, that might have been true in the Bible, but in this particular circumstance, it's, it's okay. It's not. Racism is not from God. Don't ever say that it is. Okay, let's go on. Verse 23. Verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and, um, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or or even visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So I was sent for, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? A couple of things we want to point out there. Verse 28. Peter says, Well, you understand our law, right? And our law says that a Jew should never associate with a Gentile or or visit them. Now, our question, friends, ought to be when we read those words, Peter, what law exactly says that? Where did you get that law? And it's a good thing that Peter actually says, our law says this, because that's not God's law. God's law never says that. Now, sometimes we, we think it does, especially with all of these food laws, right? And, and that's why perhaps we, we need to talk about those food laws here for a bit. Um, you know, where did those food laws ever come from? And uh, the answer is this. The purpose of God's food laws, the one we're probably most familiar with, right? You always hear, well, you can eat beef, but you can't eat pork, um, The purpose of those food laws were something like a a daily visual aid in the life of the Jews. A daily visual aid. In other words, what they were really intended to teach was that all people are sinful. And, And as sinful people, we are not allowed in God's presence. And therefore, we can't just stride in our sinful state. We can't just stride into God's holy presence and expect to be accepted. And so in that condition, that sinful condition, we have to look to God and ask, God, what is it that you can do to make us acceptable to you? And that's where we get the whole, um, the whole ritual system of Israel, the priests and the sacrifices and all of that. And what it was intended to do was to take us on the spectrum from this unclean place to being clean to being holy and acceptable in God's presence. How do we get from one end of the spectrum to the other? God provides a way. If you give, make these sacrifices, you can come into my presence. God provides a way. It's all by grace that God allows one thing to the other. The food laws were supposed to teach Israel about that. Okay? That when we give in to sin, we have to turn to God and look to Him for how to be cleansed of that sin. Over time, however, those cleanliness laws were twisted into just another means of self salvation and works righteousness. If I keep all of these laws, I will make myself holy and i will be better than all of these other nations all of the gentile nations and we can separate ourselves from them so that was that became kind of the goal to separate from the jews rather than to live among the jews and to go or the gentiles and go to the gentiles as a nation of priests right so when we hear peter say our law forbids this we ought to be asking what law? And then you get to the rest of verse 28, and Peter testifies this. God has shown me that I should not call any man or any human impure or unclean. Now, we should all smile there and recognize that this is progress for Peter. Progress. All of those hammer blows that you read about in these previous verses, you read at the same time, Peter's like, I, I still don't understand all this, Lord. Peter's trying to, I, struggling with how to understand this, how to understand this. Here we see he's beginning to understand, right? Now, God used a metaphor of animals, He used a metaphor of food, but the point is about people, isn't it? It's about people. Three times God showed him a sheet full of animals. Only now is he beginning to understand that God's really talking about people. Now, um, let's try and understand this. There is a reason that God uses animals, this sheet full of food. Why is that? Why does he use that as his teaching aid? Well, it's because food is a cultural item, right? It's a cultural item. And our cultures define us and distinguish us far more than we would like to admit. Our diets, in particular, distinguish us from other human beings. I've told you uh, before about my friend in high school who showed up uh, to lunch one day with a cow tongue sandwich. And he intended to gross us all out. He was showing everybody and it worked. We were all grossed out. And we thought this is just another sign of how uncouth and barbarian-like those Usper people are. <laughs> Not like us refined Sheboyganites, right? Um, you want to know how pride works? That's how pride works. But you also see how food works, right? All of these um, cultural practices that we have, like I said, they distinguish us from one another. We grow up, Within a certain culture, eating certain foods and going about certain practices, and those, those cultural practices, they make us feel at home. They make us feel, um, they make us feel safe and predictable. Uh, they make us feel comfortable. And then when we experience other cultures and other diets, right, those things seem strange to us and foreign to us, And and sometimes they're even a bit scary. And then it's not just the cultural practices that feel that way, but it's the people who practice them that feel that way as well. And so we begin to feel like, those people, they're different. They're different from me, okay? That's why God is using food here. And so sometimes, friends, sometimes the world actually has it right because there's sort of a movement over the last number of years, a movement among the world where we are encouraged to engage in cross-cultural activities, aren't we? To get involved with other cultures, to, to see what they're like, to learn what they're like, to get used to them. And, and that is, I think, something that, that we're moving in the right direction, right? Once in a while, check out an, an Indian restaurant and try a different cuisine, and then learn a little more about that culture. That's a a step in the right direction. But let me say this. It's only a step. It's only a step in the right direction. Okay? Friends, don't take a lot of pride in saying, well, I celebrated Mexican Independence Day with a margarita. Or, uh, you know, I signed my daughter up for Irish step dancing. There's nothing to be proud about that. Yes, it's a step in learning about another culture, but it's only a step. And what Luke is saying is the goal isn't to accept other cultural practices. The goal is actually to accept other human beings. That's where God is moving us. There are steps we can take but the goal is where Peter finally arrived. God has shown me that I should not call any human being impure or unclean. Okay? Next thing that happens is uh, in verse 30 to 33 basically Cornelius Peter goes to Cornelius and Cornelius prompts him with the question tell us What God wants us to hear. Again, this is God who's moving. And then you get to verse 34. What is it that God wants us to hear? Tell us, Peter. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now you can read the rest of that section. It goes all the way to 43, but here's what I want you to understand, okay? The gospel that Peter proclaims to Cornelius, it's the very same gospel that Peter proclaimed to the Jews. In other words, there isn't a special gospel for Gentiles, There isn't one gospel for the Jews, another one for the Gentiles. It's all the same gospel. Like we read in the form for baptism, there is one Lord Jesus Christ. There is one baptism. There is one one gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. We all have to believe in the same Son of God that He died for my sins. One gospel for all of us, okay? If you look at verse 44, we're we're getting close here, friends. While Peter was still speaking, he's still speaking the gospel. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now just think about that a moment. If you ever want to know God's heart, what's in God's heart, what God's heart is like, read that verse again, and then read it again. It's like, It's like God is a child on Christmas morning. He can't wait to open the presents. He's been waiting since Genesis 12 and anticipating this very moment. And Peter is actually there. He's still proclaiming the gospel. He's not even done. He's still got more to say. And God says, that's enough, Peter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit right now. Because this is the most exciting time in the history of salvation. This is what it's all been leading up to. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all people from all nations. And God pours out the Holy Spirit before Peter is even done. Now, is that the normal practice? No. But Luke is telling us God is excited. This is a big moment. And we should be excited about it too. In fact, as you go on in these next verses, I'm not going to read them, but we read that the Holy Spirit is poured out, and then Peter says, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's here, we might as well baptize as well. And you get that reverse of order again. Throughout the rest of Acts, it's always been, and and they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. Here, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they're baptized. And it's like, God is leading the way, isn't he? God is leading his church. He's out in front, and it's the church's role then to sit back and, yep, confirm what God is doing. He's brought the Gentiles. He's poured out his spirit on them. We might as well confirm it, and we'll baptize. Wow. And they receive, like I said earlier, a, bapt- or a, a Pentecost just for Gentiles. The exact same signs, speaking in tongues, praising God. Do we all receive those those signs when we are converted? No, I mean most of our most of our conversions are are quiet, and we don't get those special Holy Spirit speaking in tongue kind of moments. We do get something else. We get a supper where Jesus says, "You come to my table because." You've been invited right from the very beginning. All you Gentiles, you aren't an afterthought. You come to my table and let me assure you now, through my Holy Spirit, that you belong to me. Now, that would be a, a good place to end. And time of the morning, you're probably saying, yes, that would be a good, good place to end, Peter. Um, it will end in a moment because it wouldn't be right to end right there. What did I say at the beginning? What is this text about? It's about race. It's about race. We sang a gathering song this morning, the words of the Lord's Prayer. And it said this, Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as in heaven. And then it adds this line, right here in my heart. That's an important line. Because the kingdom of God doesn't come out there, doesn't come in Brookfield or in Milwaukee or in Wisconsin, doesn't come on the streets out there until it comes first in my heart. There's a picture in Revelation of, of all of the nations coming together, every tribe and tongue and people and gathering together to worship Jesus Christ and the Lord our God, and we all look at that picture and we say, that's incredible, it's wonderful, I can't wait for that day to come. That day wouldn't come if it wasn't for one conversion, the conversion of Peter. The kingdom had to come into Peter's heart before it can come out here. Friends, look around you at this congregation. We all look pretty much alike. The nations are not going to gather together with us in this place <clears throat> unless there's a conversion in my heart and in your hearts. Until we see that the gospel is for everyone and we want everyone to be here in the name of of Jesus Christ. A religion of good works, friends, gives some people the right to feel superior to others. Gives us the right to separate, to exclude, because I'm better. But a religion and a gospel that's founded on grace means that no saved person can ever feel superior to anyone else. Not Jonah, not Peter, not me, and not you. So as we eat and drink now, I pray that we'll feel the excitement that God felt when when us Gentiles were allowed for the first time to share in this meal. I pray that we'll feel his excitement. And I also pray that we will feel his great anticipation for that Sunday that's coming hopefully soon when many, many races will fill this very room and come to this very table. That's what baptism is all about. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, break down the sin in our own hearts. Break down our belief in self-salvation and self-serving. Convert your church. Continue to convert your church so that all of the Corneliuses out there may recognize and know that they've been in God's heart from the very beginning. And they are welcome to come to Jesus, to find salvation, to be converted, and to join us at this table. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.